Well, thanks to Joey and Parker for inviting me to come down here and to be able to preach to you. Good to see you, Barb and Carlotta. And uh, really a joy. I've been on kind of a strange sort of sabbatical for a couple of months from the pulpit uh, after having preached for uh, 15 years here in Connecticut. Sunday after Sunday, it's been kind of a blessed hiatus for me and for us. And this is my first opportunity to come back into the pulpit. And so I look forward to sharing the Word of God with you. Go ahead and grab your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 7. I'll get there in a minute. Just had the blessing this past week of having our second daughter get married. And so we have a new son in the family. We just had our only high school student just graduate yesterday. And what that means is we're about to enter into that phase of life of being the empty nesters. When that happens in a few weeks' time, as he heads off to California and goes to college, and the place becomes quite quiet, and the days become so predictable. And that's all ahead in our future. But we've been richly blessed, and at times we've gone through some staggeringly difficult trials in life, as you have as well. Uh, if you're one of those senior saints that Parker was talking about where you've lost all your faculties, uh, sometimes I feel like that's right where I am. And uh, if the only thing you know is that Jesus Christ is your Savior, well, that's pretty good and that's pretty wonderful. But I know that also all of you, along with me, desire to do what is honoring and pleasing to the Lord. And in that regard, then Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 helps us in that matter, because it takes something that is so very, very large and makes it very easily understood. Look at verse 12 with me. Jesus says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. There'll never come a circumstance or situation in life that this verse doesn't apply to because Jesus says, in everything. And when he says, therefore, he's connecting what he's saying here with what he just said in the prior few verses. So, <clears throat> as we look at this passage together this morning, it's a passage that has this kind of universal applicability. Whatever you're going through in life right now, whatever I'm going through and my heart is going through, this passage actually speaks to it. It's also universal because Jesus basically sums up the entire Old Testament, itself a massive collection of writings, and says there that if you treat others the way that you yourself would like to be treated, then that encompasses or that is the teaching of the law and the prophets and there's nobody better who could tell you what you need to do in order to fulfill the law and the prophets the entirety of the old testament and of course doesn't it tell you about the wisdom of jesus christ because here is a man who can authoritatively tell you what it is in a quick sentence the entire old testament boils down to and so in Matthew 7, 12, we have a special verse. And because of this special verse, Christians have universally recognized its moral excellence over the centuries. It summarizes man's moral duties and does so in so few words. We commonly call it the golden rule. Jesus called it the narrow gate. Look at verse 13. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I hope that you, like me, hold a, a special and revered place in your heart for Matthew 7.12. I tell you honestly that a thousand times, a thousand times, this verse has helped direct my steps away from foolishness, arrogance, from saying something that would have only hurt, from an activity or an action that would not have been right. And it has guided me 
as I hope it has you, through so many tangled webs of, of situations with all kinds of people, every kind of people, all kinds of circumstances. And I, I tell you, it has never, ever led me astray, this verse. It has always, in the midst of life's decisions, led me into peace. And it can never lead us astray. It can never lead us into sin and foolishness. After all, we're dealing here with the Word of God, and this is higher than the teachings of men. All the teachings of men, those that came before Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, those that came after He ascended back to heaven, no verse, no structure, no teaching, no didactic explanation from the philosophers and theologians of the centuries, of all the religions of humanity, have been able to arise and ascend to the level of this simple, straightforward verse. And so if we call it the golden rule, then understand that the gold is in the words. The gold is in the truth contained therein. While verse 13 and 14 are talking about escaping the destruction of eternal hell, yet that's not the motivation for that can help you to live out the golden rule to actually take this verse and to receive it into the very weavings of your own heart and all the things that make you just especially you. Just to escape the eternal punishment of hell is not enough for you to treat others as you yourself would like to be treated. Instead, the motivation to treat others as you yourself would like to be treated is the astonishing goodness of God who gives good gifts, never gives bad gifts. The world's religions and the world's philosophies and the cultural things that we all see on TV all fall flat at this point. They can tell you how to live peaceably with other people, but they can never provide you with the power on how to do it. On the other hand, the teachings of Jesus Christ include within them the motivation and the power Every other form of the golden rule, and there are web pages out there on all these different golden rules that are there, are all tainted. They appeal to you at the level of your own selfishness. And that is why they seek your agreement. That's why they appeal to so many people. But because of that, the emphasis in all the other golden rules that have been out there throughout the centuries have always been in the negative, never the positive. They basically go like this. Don't do bad to other people, so they won't do bad to you in return. And that's the way the world's golden rules work. The Jewish rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. The book of Tobit in the Apocrypha teaches what you yourself hate to no man do. The motivation is basically selfish. Refrain from hurting someone else so they don't, in turn, hurt yourself. And so life is primarily about pain avoidance under the golden rules of this world. Confucius, the amazing Chinese philosopher, was also negative on this. He said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Greek philosopher Epictetus said this, what you avoid suffering yourself, do not inflict on others. It's all negative. Philosopher Socrates said, Do not do to others what angers you if done to you by others. It's all about you avoiding stress. It's all about you avoiding painful situations. It's all about us basically figuring out what would be painful to me and therefore don't do that painful thing to someone else. And then there is the great American theologian Miley Cyrus. And she says this, Anyone that hates on you is always below you because they're just jealous of what you have. And then what businessman doesn't know the ultimate golden rule? He who has the gold makes the rules. Well, only Jesus Christ teaches this. Look back at verse 12. He makes it positive. 
Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. In other words, take initiative. It isn't don't do bad to other people, which is passive. It's positive. It's taking initiative. It's do good to other people as you would like other people to treat you. So as opposed to the world, Jesus teaches that how we determine we're going to teach other people is not to be determined by how we expect them to treat us in return or is to be determined by how we think they're going to treat us, but rather forgetting those expectations for the moment. And you may be right. Instead, by how we would want them to treat us in the first place. That's the point of Matthew 7, 12, in terms of our application. The world's golden rules appeal to our native narcissism, our love of self, first and foremost. It's always this, don't do bad to other people so they don't do bad back to me. It's selfish. It's motivated by fear and self-preservation. It's always really about love of self so I don't feel hurt. It's not about love of others. And so it can never ever provide us the inner motivation to do good to other people other than from the motive of self-interest, which really then means that all the world's teachings only chain us to our own self-love over and over again, but they just put it up and dress it in pretty words. That's the great danger of misreading Matthew 7.12 and fitting it into what you already receive six days a week. It's just thinking that this is what you already believe. And it's not. Because this is against your native self-interest. This is against your natural narcissism. This is against our own, my own love of self. Jesus Christ is so different than all the other teachers of the world. He doesn't appeal to our narcissism. He doesn't appeal to our self-love. He doesn't appeal to our pride. Go back to the beginning of verse 11 and see this at work. Notice what he says. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, stop right there. There's no flattery there. In fact, it's just the opposite. He exposes our narcissism as the problem. It's not our salvation to go ahead and figure out what we want and how to get it from other people Rather than chaining us to our self-love, notice how glibly it comes out of his mouth. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, like, of course, you're just evil. You'll never read that, of course, in a Confucius or a Socrates or anybody else. Jesus doesn't flatter us. He actually calls us up as to who we actually are. Which means that when people flatter us by telling us that we are naturally good, and so therefore don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you, somehow that appeals to us. And so we figure out then, and we learn in life as we get older, that the way to get what we want from other people is just to give them what they want, and not to give them what they don't want. And so we figure out how to manipulate, how to present a a front to people, how to be a a sweet person, how to have a disposition that is winsome, kind, until we get old and we realize that it's all been phony and then we just give up the pretense, maybe. Maybe not. Jesus teaches that we are evil in verse 11. And in the prior section here, verses 7 through 11, he teaches us that the way to get What you want in life, and what you want in life is that which is good. The way to get that is by praying and seeking and knocking. The world teaches us to think first of what we want. And and then we think, well, that's the motivation behind the golden rule. The way that you want to treat others, figure out how you'd like to be treated. How can I manipulate that 
So I get from other people, from my spouse, from my children, from my boss, from my workers, what I want. Life becomes a series of manipulations and motivations, and the heart grows empty, and the Word of God lays flat on the page, and it ought not be that way. Jesus teaches that the trust that we as believers are to have in God's goodness is the motivation to doing the golden rule. And the wonderful thing about that is that if you will believe the goodness of God, then you can be really freed up from the natural narcissism that is in your heart. I can be freed up from the narcissism in my heart. And to be so freed up from always everything having to be all about me, and all about me always getting what I always want, that then I can actually have the genuine motivation that the Holy Spirit provides to love people and and trust that God will give me that which is good. We don't have to hide then behind our narcissism anymore. We can come into the light. We can be freed from the pretense, from the false face, from the deliberations of our own heart that are always trying to figure out how to get what I want to get. So let me say it this way. Matthew 7, 12 is the highest mountain then in the Sermon on the Mount from an ethical point of view. It has stood the test of time, has it not? And it has never been more elegantly translated than it is in the King James Version. Listen. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Cascading down then to your ears this morning, through the centuries of time and through the providence of God, comes to you then the holy words of Jesus Christ, standing above the epochs of time and before the births and deaths of millions and billions, come to you the entire encapsulated Old Testament, framed for you in the most precious and simple words, so that you and I might come to trust in the goodness of God and to find that in life what we are getting is exactly as the goodness of God has designed specifically for you. And that's where I want to take you this morning. It's really simple, isn't it? What you would have others do to you, you do to them first. A child can follow it. And it's even applicable to the great governments of our world. If you live it out, you will, Jesus says, fulfill the law and the prophets, the whole of moral duty before God. And God himself, the generous God, the good God, the will provide you with the power and the motivation to do that which is right in his eyes and before all men. So I'm just going to walk you through this passage, but I'm going to give you a a four-point outline for those of you who take notes, both of you. There is God's all-encompassing generosity, God's all-inclusive generosity, God's much better generosity, and God's generosity that sets you free to love. There's kind of a theme going on there with goodness and generosity. Let's look together first at God's all-encompassing generosity. Would you join me back in verse 7, please? Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, it's almost like Jesus just states this and makes it so obvious, like, Of course, this is true, that that there's no limitation on what you can ask God for. The word you, in verse 7, here refers to anyone who is a disciple, follower of Jesus Christ, is a learner from his teachings and is applying his teachings to life. Anyone. This word you is used seven times in the next six verses, all the way down through verse 12. It's always used of a Christian. Now, back in verse 6, he had made a distinction. Back in verse 6, he had talked about dogs and pigs. This is different. This is talking about Christians. And back in verse 4, he had talked about your brother, talking about those who are in the faith. 
So Jesus isn't saying here that just anybody can ask, anybody will therefore receive, anybody can seek, everybody will find. No. He isn't saying that anybody can knock and the door will be open to them. No, just his disciples. So just to be specific about who he's talking to here. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. And what a promise then it is. Do you see any limitations therein? I confess I do not. Now we could add some limitations in. We could say, well, unless you pray according to God's will, he won't answer, and that's true. But it would steal away from Jesus' point here. Of course, God will not answer your prayers that are actually bad for you. But the point here is God's all-encompassing generosity in three beats. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Let's take them one by one. Ask and it shall be given to you. Now what is this, of course, but prayer? And when Jesus makes this blanket invitation to you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, here at the beginning, he's saying... Basically, now that you have cleared the logs out of your eyes, ask away. You might remember back in verse 3, he had talked about how can you see the speck in your brother's eye and not see the log in your own. And Jesus had taught on how to take the log out of your own eye. That, by the way, comes through prayer. Having done that then, we are now free in verse 7 to ask and it will be given to you. The logs are gone. That which was inconvenient to us in another person, the speck. And our awful and selfish response to it of anger and resentment and inner turmoil only exposed the log that was in our own eye and now we have gone to God over it. We have seen, in fact, that our response to the inconvenience of another was, in fact, a log-sized iniquity and where their transgression was that of the size of a speck of dust. We now come to God in verse 7 and we ask away. And you know what happens here when you continue asking God for grace and mercy, but oh, you're holding anger and bitterness and resentment in your heart against your brother. And it doesn't come and you get hardened. And the Lord is chastening you until you learn to love your brother as he teaches. So this is talking here about God's all-encompassing generosity. Do you don't see any limitations in the verse. Ask and it will be given to you. The heart has been cleared out. And then the second beat, also in the middle of verse 7, seek and you will find. Most commentators say that this too is talking about prayer. Either an increased intensity in prayer or a stick in prayer, kind of a perseverance in prayer. But just a few verses earlier, Jesus had used the very same word, seek, to refer to your life's purpose. Go back to Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's not talking about prayer. I'd like to suggest to you that when Jesus says here in verse 7, seek and you will find, he is repeating what he had said in verse 33. He's referring to the purpose of your life, the intent of your life. And that's why in both Matthew 6.33 and in Matthew 7.7, 7, it's a promise. If you seek, you will find, you will be taken care of. And so verse 7 then is not just about God's generosity in answering the prayers of his children, but it's greater than prayer. And what he's saying here is that in life, he will not let you seek in vain. But you will find, as a Christian, that which your heart truly desires, he will let you find it. Much broader than just prayers. The seeking in your life. Listen, beloved your heavenly father is not like the gods of the pagans. A blend of good and bad. Sometimes good, sometimes evil, depending on which side of the bed he wakes up on in the morning. No, he is all good. 
God does not lead with a carrot, and then when you reach for the carrot, sadistically pull it away from you and laugh at your misery for the fool you are for having reached for the carrot that he dangled in front of you. Greek mythology tells of Aurora, the goddess of the dawn, who fell in love with Tithonus, a mortal youth, a boy. When Zeus, the king of the gods, promised to grant her any gift, she chose her lover. She asked that Tithonus might live forever, uh, but she forgot to ask Zeus that Tithonus might also remain forever young. And so when Zeus granted her request, Tithonus was doomed to an eternity of perpetual aging. And so what she wanted, she was actually denied. Such are the capricious ways of the gods that men make. But God is good. There is no evil in him at all. God is essentially good. That is that God defines goodness, not vice versa. He is not just good. He is goodness itself. Linguists tell us that the word God comes from the old word for good. He's essentially good. There's no evil within him. God is also infinitely good. There is no limit to the goodness of God. You put yourself on a small little boat out in the middle of the ocean. No way to reach land. And imagine the ocean to be the goodness of God. Everywhere you look is the goodness of God. And now imagine that ocean has no borders, no land that it rubs up against. That is the goodness of God. Imagine that you could take a sounding infinitely deep. There is no bottom to the depth of God's own goodness. His goodness is an ocean without banks and without bottom. God is intelligently good. God can do no better than he is doing in your life right now. God can do no better than he is doing in your life right now. Everything that he is doing in your life right now is utterly good. He is omnipotent. He has all power. This really begins to take God's goodness and press it up against God's holiness. Remember Hannah? Oh, she cried before the Lord because her husband didn't love her. And her womb was barren. Do you remember how she prayed to the Lord? Now she prayed that he would lift off of her the great burden of her heart. In her first Samuel 2 2, she said, There is no one holy like the Lord. God is immutably good. God's goodness cannot be increased to get to a higher level of goodness, and he can't even decrease his level of goodness. Because to do so would imply that he is somehow imperfectly good. If he even had the possibility of decreasing the level of goodness in him. God has all possible perfection and therefore all possible goodness in the highest possible degree. This is who God is. And then the third beat here in verse 7 as we're just starting to see what's here is the words knock and it shall be open to you. This relates to your hopes, your aspirations. So long as you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, this can relate to the finding of a spouse, the bearing of children, adopting children, a job, a career, a hoped-for ministry in the church. Knocking is taking initiative to try something out, to invest time or money And again, check out God's goodness. This is a promise like the prior one that comes without any frustration. Look what he says here in verse 7. Knock and it will be what? Opened to you. It's not going to be closed to you. And this is not for just anybody out there, beloved. This is for you. Do you see it there at the end of verse 7? In other words, the frustration that people of this world constantly experience in life is the frustration of seeking their intentions and the desires of their heart and constantly experiencing frustration as life goes on. 
That will not be your situation. The goodness of God will see to it that your life is not a frustrating affair. What generosity of God, what all-encompassing generosity, what unlimited kindness will be to you in prayer, you will ask and it will be given to you. This is the God who possesses all power to do good and who does good. Moses asked God to show himself to him. And God said to him, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Hey, at the time, Moses was emotionally distraught and about ready to slit his wrist. How much goodness is in God? Psalm 31. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Even in the end times, when judgments are being poured out on the earth, God's goodness will be known in the midst of that time. Hosea 3.5 Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. God's goodness. You can entirely, wholly, and without any fear trust in Him. Nahum 1.7 says this, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. If you're like me, you love nature. In fact, we got an amazing display of it today. This is one of the best days of the year today. After six days of activity, the Bible says God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The Bible itself is the story of God's goodness to man, who due to sin is in never-ending need all the time of good. So what then is the motivation to live this golden rule, to treat people in the same way you want to treat them? We're starting to see it now. It's God's goodness. How good is God? Ask and it is given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. He will encompass your life with good. Psalm 23, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You cannot put a limit on the goodness of God. But we're so often like Jonah, thinking that what God tells us to do, if we do it, things will go bad for us. The most common answer I get at my church when I preach this is, if I do what you're saying, I'm going to be walked on like a doormat. Makes me bristle. No, just kidding. I guess that's our heart of unbelief. If I trust God at his word, it will go badly for me. Every one of us struggles with that. But I'm here to tell you that God is good. How good is God? Okay, let's move on to the all-inclusive generosity of God. Look at verse 8. For everyone, there's our key word, everyone, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks find, and to him who knocks it will be opened. In other words, listen, beloved, every one of you, God does not have favorites. Some of you won't believe me, even though I tell you that. But I ask you to compute that into your thinking because it's true. You yourself clearly have favorites. God does not. Look at the first word of verse 8. It is the word for. It is an explanatory word that tells you that now Jesus is explaining what he just said in verse 7. So Jesus basically repeats what's in verse 7, but he adds the word everyone. God, in other words, is so generous. God is so good that he gives to everyone who asks, not just some special ones. He gives to everyone who seeks. And he allows them to find not just some really good ones. And to everyone who knocks, it shall be open. Not just the people who are better than you and me. Jesus makes no distinction between the missionary 
and the struggling single mother here. See that? He makes no distinction between the older saint with decades of faithfulness and the little child who has no resume or spiritual track record. He makes no distinction between the preaching pastor and the struggling husband. Everyone. He plays no favorites. God's goodness is not like man's goodness. Man only does good to those who do good to him first. And when someone does us wrong, oh, we want them to get the wrath that they so deserve. I know, it's in my heart too. But Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, the priests of the Levitical singers, along with the trumpeters, lifted themselves in one voice and cried out in 2 Chronicles 5, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. Psalm 34, 8 says this, Beloved, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. That's his all-inclusive generosity. Let's move on to God's much better generosity. Join me in verse 9. Jesus continuing. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? So, God is much better than who? Your earthly father. Now those of you who were not blessed with generous earthly fathers have no problem agreeing with this text. Your heavenly Father is much more generous and much more good than your earthly father. But this text says that God is better than even the very best earthly dad. Do you see the words in verse 11 in the middle there, much more? What they really mean is a great deal more, not just a little bit more, but a great deal more. So as good as your dad may have been at giving to you, he's no comparison, Jesus is saying, for how good God is. Okay, now this passage is very clever, so follow along here. What dad, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, does dad give him a rock? Raise your hands, right? Nobody here. No dad does this. No dad does this. What does dad do? Dad gives him pizza. Dad gives him Tostitos. Mom gives him fruit and vegetables. You know how it goes. And so the son gets what he wants. So listen, how can God be so much better if the son is already getting what he wants from his earthly natural dad? If the son asks for bread, the dad gives him bread. No dad in his right mind plays a trick on his son or out of some bizarre twist of cruelty passes him a rock lest to see, hey, maybe he'll bite on it and break a tooth. Won't that be fun to see my son do that? No. Or verse 10, if he asks for a fish, he won't give him a snake, will he? What dad, when the son asks for a fish, gives him a snake? Hey, let's see if he gets bit in the face. Oh, that'll be fun, right? No way. No dad does that. Hey, here's how it works. The dad just provides the food, stretches out his arm, the kid just reaches and takes, and he eats. He doesn't think about it, he just does it. See, no dad gives a snake. No dad gives a stone. So how then is God much better than a dad who would always and only give really what are good things to his son? Look, only a twisted and weird, mentally deranged, deceitful, twisted dad would ever give his son something evil. And that's not the people Jesus is talking to here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not talking to evil, twisted, weird people who give their sons that stuff. He's just talking to normal, sinfully depraved dads. Jesus is talking here about 99.999% of all dads. They all give good things to their kids. 
What dad would give a rock instead of bread? None, in other words, none. What dad would give a snake instead of a fish? None. Dads don't do that. Sinful, depraved dads, like he says in verse 11, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, you wouldn't do that. Jesus says here, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So if you, being an evil dad, had your son distrust you when all along you've always provided him with bread and fish, what he needed, what he wanted, how hard and how painful would it be for you to have your son turn around and distrust you as though you were evil, as though you didn't give good gifts? How would you feel? You would feel awful. And yet ultimately, you are evil. Jesus says you are in verse 11. You would feel awful if your son turned around and distrusted you. This morning, sitting on the sofa with my oldest son, and we were talking about pants, and he didn't have any blue jeans, and he turns his head and he gives me one of these looks like, hey, where's my blue jeans, Dad? It's all sarcasm in our home. And I was like, you just gave me a great illustration for my sermon. I provided him with pants low these 20 years. And so when he's lacking one pair of pants, he acts as if he's never gotten anything from me. And so, you know, now if that was real, I would be so hurt. I have loved this son. I have given him everything. The kid is six foot five. He hasn't lacked a lot. Now, this is what we do with our Heavenly Father. And I'm evil. God gives us and gives us and gives us, and then when He gives us what we do not like, we all of a sudden impugn evil motives to Him. That's unbelief. You see, it's awful to have your children distrust you, but you know what? Being evil, we actually deserve it. God, however never deserves it. Look how Jesus says it in verse 11. How much more will your father, and it ought to read this way in the text, how much more will your father who is good give what is good to those who ask you? But notice what Jesus says. Your father who is in heaven, the source of all goodness, the source of all holiness, the source of all righteousness. And so he directs your heart to heaven. Where God rules and reigns over the evil circumstances of your life and the pains and the agonies that have shaped and hurt and pummeled you and humbled you, brought you to a place of so much despair at times. How much better is your Father who is in heaven. He will give what is good to you. Will He not? Or is He worse than an earthly sinful Father who yet would give you bread and fish? Well, God gives. He gives. He gives. It says at the end of verse 11, He gives what is good to those who ask Him. So we've looked at God's all-encompassing goodness back in verse 7. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Not going to be able to. His all-inclusive goodness. Everyone who asks. Everyone who seeks. Everyone who knocks. Now we've seen his much better goodness. Look, your earthly dad. He was good to you and he was evil. How much better is your heavenly father? And now finally we can come back to the golden rule. Verse 7, verse 12, excuse me to where we can see that God's generosity sets free to love. Look at verse 12 again. In everything, therefore, now we know what the therefore is therefore. Treat people in the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. The reason that we don't treat other people in the way we ought to is because we do not believe God will treat us good. 
we are simply unbelieving that God will treat us good if we treat people the way we ourselves would like to be treated. We distrust in the goodness of God. We treat them rudely. We give back to them the evil that they give to us. And so we don't treat other people the way that we ourselves would like to be treated, but we judge how we should treat other people based on how we feel they've treated us. Because we don't trust the goodness of God, overruling and providing for all of our life. We have to figure it out for ourselves. We have to provide for ourselves. We have to protect our own hearts. We cannot trust thoroughly in the goodness of this great and glorious God. After all, we don't know he may have some hidden motive toward us that's evil because of either sins that we've done in the past or because he sees something in us that he just can't stand. And so we make ourselves the measure of who he is. And if it hurts an earthly dad to have his son distrust him, how offensive must it be to our Heavenly Father, who's never done any of us evil, and only good, and that continually. Our dads never gave us stones for bread. Our dads never gave us snakes for fish. But our God does allow all sorts of evil things to come into our lives. Sometimes God does give us stones for bread. Sometimes God does give us snakes for fish. Can he be trusted in the evil? Can this God that Jesus teaches of be trusted? And the answer is absolutely yes for the wonderful privilege you have. In answering that question for your own heart is can this God be trusted for the evil that I've hurt and experienced is to look at Christ and to say, well, did he entrust the Father for himself being hurt? And the answer is a very humbling yes. He so thoroughly trusted him that he never murmured against him. You know, it was, Father, if this cup can pass, please let it pass. But not what I will, but what you will. And on the way to the cross, he stumbles, right? The cross, the patibulum that's stretched across his shoulders is just too heavy. He's out of strength. He's been scourged and whipped and slapped and beat and put through six trials the evening before. And finally on the way to the cross, he stumbles. Why not just refuse to get up? Why get up and travel the rest of the way? Let the soldiers beat you right there. Do away with life. Jesus receiving rocks for bread and snakes for fish stands back up and goes to his cross to receive more. To receive evil from his father so that you and I would not. This is how good your heavenly father is. He punishes the holy one in order to set free the guilty in order to shower love and to bestow grace and kindness upon those who deserve punishment. And now, having understood in the gospel the great goodness of God, and having understood the limitless goodness and generosity of God through the text of Scripture here, ask and it will be given to you, for God is always giving, and all that he gives is very good, so much better than your earthly father. So then now, having been absolutely surrounded in reality of God's goodness in your life, your history, what's happened to you yesterday, what will happen to you this week, is all coming 
to you and me through the goodness of an omnipotent God whose love is so profound and rich. Now we have the motivation why we can treat other people in the way we ourselves would like to be treated because it does not matter what man does to me. So let your character be free from the love of money. It really doesn't matter what man does to me. The very great and lavish goodness of God is surrounding you as if you're in a small boat out on the ocean and every part of your life is surrounded by the goodness of God. Be not unbelieving, holding on to this grip of unbelief that God is mercurial. Some days he's good, some days he's bad. I don't know, maybe I can trust him, maybe I can't. If I do, I might get hurt by so-and-so. Be freed up from that fear of being hurt. Be freed up from living for self's protection. Trusting yourself into the utter goodness of God that all that comes to pass in your life is good. So much better than you could ever get from your earthly father as must come to you from a heavenly father. Are you with me? You love the goodness of God? Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for the fact that all your gifts to us are good. You've never done anyone evil. You've certainly never tempted anyone to do any sin. But instead, all that you've ever given is holy, good, just, and wise. We ourselves have often responded with a heart of unbelief that refuses to believe that you are good. Grumbling and complaining, moaning, sinning. There's a comfortability in being held in the grip of unbelief that must be repented of. Unbelief is such a deep and vast enemy. Oh, show it to our souls. Oh, that we may trust in the goodness of God and treat others as we ourselves wish to be treated, for this is the law and the prophets. And bless you, Lord Jesus, for being so kind, not only to teach this among our, our, our humanity, but then to preserve it for us in Scripture. So thank you. In your great name, dear God, amen.